Thank you very much, singers, for that beautiful piece. Well, we continue in our Lenten sermon series, a series that we're calling Crosswalk, as we are journeying closer and closer and closer to that cross that held Jesus and the resurrection that's going to follow. And so I'm reminded of what prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And so we are seeking to walk in it along this way. And it began with Ash Wednesday and a reminder of our mortality, our need for God. It continued by hearing this call that we must trust in God. We must wait for God. We must seek to learn from God and we must repent to God. We continued with Jesus saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And just last week we had Jesus in the temple overturning the tables and chasing away an attempt to get back to pure worship. But today we have the gospel in a nutshell, the most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I never just recite verse 16 without also doing verse 17. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, Nell did a beautiful job reading our gospel lesson, but you might be wondering, what is this? And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so God, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's that all about? Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness? Snakes. I hate snakes. A few years ago, we did a sermon series, Profiles in Courage, and we heard about courage in the midst of snakes. So we remember this story. Moses led God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt, where they had been for so long. And as soon as they get on the way, the people start to grumble. The people start to complain. They start to rebel. They they do naughty things. As one scholar said, they longed for their Egyptian appetites. That God was doing something new. But the, the evil of the people got to such an extent that punishment was coming. And so there were these poisonous snakes that were sent, and they would bite God's people, and they would get sick, and they would die. And the people realize that they have made a mistake. And so I'm picking up this, this story in Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit somebody... That person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. The people did two really important things there. They they confessed their sins and they confessed their rebellion. But then they asked for Moses to intercede. And that seems foreign to us. Why did they have to have Moses pray to God? You know, we believe that we have direct access to God and that God hears our individual prayers, different time, different understanding of worship. And so the Lord does respond makes a way for healing and wholeness to be possible. 
But do you notice what God did not do? God did not remove the snakes. Why? Why? Sin has and will continue to have its effects. You know, we're going to walk around with scars from some of the things that we have done, whether they're physical or emotional. The dangers remain all around us, and the people continue to suffer from potentially death-dealing snakes. However, there is healing from the Lord, and although the scars uh, of the snake bites, the effects of sin, doubtless remain. I have a lot of study Bibles, and so I was in my Eugene Peterson message study Bible, and this is what he says about this encounter. God brought judgment on the people because of their grumbling, but judgment was not the last word. Judgment is never the last word. Judgment is necessary because of our hard-heartedness. Its proper work is to open our hearts, to crack the shell of our self-sufficiency so that we can experience the inrushing of grace. Man, I love that term. The inrushing of grace of our loving and compassionate God. It is God who is the source of our forgiveness, our healing, our wholeness. Now, Numbers is not the only place we hear about this bronze serpent that was lifted up. It had to be lifted up high enough so that everyone in the camp could see it when they were bit by a snake. We hear of this snake again 800 years after Moses fashioned it during the time of King Hezekiah, and he actually had to destroy that stick, that bronze serpent, because people had started to worship it. It had become an idol for them. They even gave it a name, Nashutan. And we have a picture of Nashutan there. That's, that's a, a recreation uh, in the eastern part of the world. And people come from all over to look at that snake and to remember the story. And we know that worshiping of snakes was a common practice in the, the near eastern world. Ugh, that sounds terrible to me. But 800 years after Moses fashioned it, King Hezekiah does away with it. And 700 years after that, Jesus makes reference to it. And in doing so, he reminds us that we must come clean. We must acknowledge our own faults and our missteps and own up to it. And as people of faith, we, we cling to that promise that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I tried to read John 3, 16 and 17 in as many different languages as I could this week, but, but I I came across this version, and when you look at that version on your screen, you say, what in the world is that? That's John 3.16 in Greek. In Greek. We can't make much sense of that. And it makes us wonder, is John 3.16 played out? Have we heard it so many times? Have we seen so many athletes with it written on their eye black? Or have we so uh, tired of seeing the man with the rainbow wig and a John 3.16 sign? Has it become white noise to us? Is it too familiar? I hope not. I pray not. But again, let me just share my, my own little personal pet peeve. If you say John 3.16, also include John uh, verse 17, 16 and 17. Barclay said of this, this verse, it is everyone's text. It is a text for the entire world, and it teaches us that salvation is not our own doing. It is at God's initiative, and the nature of this God is love. God's love is deep 
and wide, and it's for the entire world. And so, yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so, if you still picture that Greek translation there, I, I did a little exercise with this text. I decided, instead of looking at all the different study Bibles and stuff, why don't I, why don't I just transcribe it myself? Why don't I give my own translation? So here is my translation of this, this passage. We have good news. God loves the entire world and all the people who have ever been conceived so much so completely that God loved us in this way. God gave the one and only kind of a son. God gave of God's self so that everyone who places all of their trust in God will never cease to be, but will forever be in relationship with God. God desires that no one be told that they have no worth, but that all receive the gift of healing, being well made whole." And so what I want to accomplish in the short time I have here this morning is to walk us phrase by phrase through this gospel in a nutshell. And it begins with, for God so loved the world. And I think what he's really trying to convey there is, this is how much, to such an extent, the greatness of this gift, the degree to which, and the intensity with which God loves. And our God is different than the gods of mythology and we know at that time in the world, our, our, the Greeks and Romans had multiple gods. But friends, those gods were not loving gods. Greek and Roman mythology had a different message. In their, in their time, the gods played and the people paid. The gods didn't love people. They played with them. Well, you see, the Jewish people, their religion really wasn't built on faith. It was based on fate. The Jews love conditionally. God, if you love God, if you, you loved God by obeying the law instead of giving your heart. But they had made following that law so complicated. The, the verse continues, so much so that he gave his only son. God did what people in love do. God gave and God gave that was which, which was most valuable to him. In this Greek, it really has a, a powerful connotation. The only son, the, the one-of-a-kind son, something unique. It's amazing that God, who created such vastness, loved us enough to invite us into the good story with good news. God loved, God gave, God loves God gives. But it continues, so that everyone, if you grew up reading the King, King James Bible, it says, whoever. It means all means all. It is an inclusive statement. William Sloan Coffin said, of God's love, God's love is poured out universally for everyone, from the Pope to the loneliest person on the planet. And secondly, God's love doesn't seek value, it creates value. God's love is not reserved for one group or one kind of person. God loves both those who are churchgoers and those who curse God in times of suffering and tragedy. God loves the CEO and the unemployed, 
God loves the teachers and social workers and doctors and nurses and lawyers and judges as much as drug dealers and addicts. God hates sin, but God loves the sinner. It continues, those who believe in him. And this preposition is first used here, meaning believes toward or leaning into or trusting completely. In Greek, there was no word for trust. And so John is trying to convey, he's trying to find a new way to describe what this means. I think the best translation would be to trust with all your weight in this good news. One of the things I love about the state of Wisconsin are all the lakes that we have, big lakes and, and little lakes, some that are just ponds, but they're called a lake, and there is a little lake very close to where I live, and when I drove past it yesterday, there were signs out warning people to not walk on the ice. Have you ever tried to walk on ice where you were really unsure if it was going to support your weight, and all of a sudden you, you hear it starting to kind of make bad sounds? We can trust in God with all of our weight. When we're standing on the promises of God our Savior, Christ our King, you are never on thin ice. Lean fully into God. Trust God with all that you have. But it continues, may not perish, that is to never go out of business, shall continue on, shall never cease to be, but receive eternal life. John uses this phrase because Jesus used this phrase. What is eternal life? Jesus defined it himself for us in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that you know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life isn't just about unending life in the sense of prolonged uh, duration. It doesn't mean that we're going to live to be a billion years old. Rather, eternal life is a quality of life, and its quality is derived from a relationship with God. Having eternal life is, is here defined as being in relationship with the one true God of creation and Jesus Christ, true God from true God. This one that was born as a child called Emmanuel, God with us. God with us that we might have life and life abundant. Jesus is saying, I want to give people a relationship with God, the God who is love and gives life and is timeless. Eternal life is purely relational. Believing is receiving. In the very first chapter of John, he says, But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. And so that's verse 16. But very quickly, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is, Jesus was not sent to judge the world to be guilty and liable to punishment. And yet that's the kind of, of God image that so many people throw at us. If you have felt condemned by a church or by a pastor, if you have left feeling, I am a no good, rotten sinner, then the church has failed you. The pastor has failed you. The good news is God loves you. Jesus did not come preaching condemnation, but Jesus came preaching love and grace. Christ did not come to judge, but as Andrew is conveying to the children, his coming is a judgment in the same way that turning on a light can be an exposure and conviction of those who prefer darkness because their deeds are evil. 
At the same time, the light is for others a gift and an occasion for joy. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. God loved, so God gave. When we trust and when we believe, we receive everlasting life. When the angel visited Mary, the angel said, I have great good news to bring to you, that God loves you and that God, has making a, God is making a way. And so the question is, have you made the decision to stop trusting only in your own merits and to accept Jesus, to place all of your weight upon Jesus? As long as you trust in you and your own actions to be right with God, you're lost. Jesus says, I want to know you. Here's this gift of grace. Receive it. Now, you may be watching this to be polite, or maybe you're watching this because you just want to spend some time with your spouse or your loved one, or maybe you're a child and your parents have told you, you need to sit down and listen to this sermon. If that's the case, I don't care why you are here, I am glad you are here and with us, and I pray that one day God will finally break into your life. Because, friends, we have good news. God loves the entire world and all the people who have ever been conceived so much, so completely, that God loved us in this way. God gave the one and only kind of son. God gave of God's self so that everyone who places all their trust in God will never cease to be, but will forever be in relationship with God. God desires that no one be told that they have no worth, but that all receive the gift of healing being well and made whole. God loved, God gave. We believe, we receive. God loves, God gives. Do you believe? Will you receive? The season of Lent is a time for us to come clean with God, to do an assessment of ourselves, to confess to our God. And so we have a call to confession before us this day. Our time of penitence before God gives us the opportunity to rid ourselves of the weights that we carry, the lingering sense that we have not lived up to our full potential, that we have cheated others, that we are disoriented and mired down in troubles of our own making. Let our individual confessions be gathered up in the confessions of the church. And so at home or here in the sanctuary, please pray with me together, healing God, God. We are are sick sick through our our sinful ways. We are are impatient, impatient, complaining, and troubled. We love the night because it hides the evil we have done and the doubt that shows on our faces. By our self-indulgent habits, we are destroying ourselves and depriving others. As a church, we seem content to be dead in our trespasses for we are afraid to embrace the changes that come with the new life you offer. We cry out to you in our trouble. Save us from our distress. Amen.